This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I have Bryce Van Stappern on the show. He is the supervisor of White House operations for the American Civil War Museum. The American Civil War Museum, if you don't know, is the new collaboration, the, the joining of the Museum of the Confederacy and the American Civil War Center. Um, and I sat down with Bryce Van Stabern at the, the Museum of the Confederacy in the basement in what they call the Stewart Room, uh, surrounded by paintings of uh, Confederates and with this enormous, amazing conference table, which gave some, some gravitas to the conversation that we were having. And we actually talked about what could be considered the United States' first Air Force, which happened you know, 50 years before the Wright brothers, not far just outside of the city of Richmond, um, during the American Civil War. Right? They're not jets, they're not you know, biplanes, but actually balloons, you know, using reconnaissance balloons. Reconnaissance balloons. Um, it's a, some, some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, you know, I get into it with Bryce, but, you know, it, it blows my mind. You know, one of the sides has a machine that's actually is making hydrogen in a big giant box. You know, how close they are to making, you know, what would be an incredibly destructive bomb. You know, it's so close yet so far. Um, but the American Civil War Museum does have some amazing events coming up. Uh, you know, at Historic Tredegar, they're going to be holding what does it call the the Hog and Harvest, which is going to be local beer and wine, barbecue, performances by um, uh, Jackass Flats, and that's going to be on Friday, September 26th. You get to go hang out and at Historic Tredegar, and and if you want to hear more from from Bryce, go see him talk at one of the the, the brown brown bag lunches. Um, it's a really cool series that they do at the Museum of the Confederacy. Um, he's going to be talking on October 17th. It's not just him. It's different people every time. But on October 17th, he's going to be talking from 12 to 1230 um, about Lookout Prison Camp. Um, that should be really fascinating as well. And you can find out more information about those and you know other events they have going on at moc.org. Um, Museum of the Confederacy's website should should be able to, to, to direct you in the right direction and get you more information. And, you know, if you go, tell them. History Replays Today sent you. How about that? Um, if you're looking for a different way to experience Richmond and its history, you know, go check out River City Segs, which is the premier Segway tour company in, in Richmond. They have the only indoor, the only Segway-specific training area in Virginia. And fall time is coming up, so they have you know, it's perfect time to take a Segway tour of Hollywood Cemetery. Well, it's always, a any time of year is a good time of year to take a, a, a segue tour of Hollywood Cemetery. Um, but, you know, they have uh, that training area, you know, because you know Hollywood, if you've ever been, it's beautiful, has amazing stories in there, but it's all hills. So you're going to want to use that training course in order to get to where you feel comfortable on those hills and feel safe to go out and ride out there. Um, find out more information at rivercitysegs.com. Also check them out on Facebook, on Twitter, at 804segs. And... Before we get into this conversation, uh, you know, it's really amazing. I mean, he dropped some some pretty fantastic names. Um, ben Franklin, George Armstrong, Strong Custer, um, you know, just to name a few. Uh, you know, and we kind of get into not just the Civil War aspect of balloons, but how that fits in, into history. Uh, you know, it's pretty amazing, 
you know, this is going to take a while to get to the, to the end of the conversation. Um, but there's still, you know, the U.S. military is still using balloons, right? It's a kind of a low-tech technology when you really consider all the amazing things that are that are going on, um, you know, with the military and drones and stuff like that to, to still be using balloons. Um, but we start out the conversation. I started asking him, um, you know, how old are these balloons? Like when, when does ballooning actually begin? When I talk about balloons, one of the first things I usually try to make sure people understand is that they were not new okay. uh, in the Civil War. Uh, the first balloon was a hot air balloon that was flown by the Montgolfier brothers uh, in France. And that occurred in September of 1783. Okay. Uh, actually, I look at notes here because I'm terrible funny being a history guy that's terrible with dates but I am but on uh, September 11 in fact 1783 the Montgolfier brothers hot air balloon makes its first public flight the problem was getting somebody to fly it uh, the Montgolfier brothers were a little scared of it uh, so was everybody else <laughs> interestingly enough King Louis XVI suggested that uh, perhaps a convicted criminal might be an outstanding choice nice. to uh, experiment with the balloon. But uh, cooler heads prevailed on that. And like I say, on September 11, uh, the Montgolfier brothers' hot air balloon first flew with a, a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Uh, so those were the first balloon passengers. Uh, but on October the 15th, uh, 1783, again, just a, you know, a month later, um, they did fly a passenger. And uh, this was a young Frenchman, and French name, Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier, mm -hmm. uh, became the first passenger uh, in the balloon. It makes me excited that they would put birds in the balloon. <laughs> well, birds and a sheep. <laughs> but <laughs> the sheep seems like it makes sense, but like the birds, it's like the, uh, to try and test what would happen to them, I guess. And it's like, I, I guess they could fly out if... Or at least, you know, the Maybe sheep so. is a goner. If it goes down, at least, you know, they have a chance. They have a fighting chance there. Yeah. Uh, but working at about the same time as the Montgolfier brothers was uh, another French fella whose name was Jacques-Alexandre César Charles. Okay. And Charles was doing something very different from the Montgolfier brothers. Uh, he was using a gas that they called inflammable gas. Mm. Uh, today, we know it as hydrogen. And what Charles was doing was taking a, a, a bag, a round bag, and filling it with hydrogen. And he knew that that took off a lot quicker than the hot air balloon that the Montgolfier brothers were flying. Um, so Charles actually came up with something that ultimately was more practical and better performing, but obviously not as safe. Because uh, e even at that time, uh, they knew that this inflammable gas, that if you got it around flame, that it burned and burned explosively. Sure. Uh, but he figured sealed in a bag uh, wasn't a problem. But again, in the fall of 1783, uh, we see Charles's first hydrogen balloon flying. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, his, his bag was round. It was a big ball in shape, and because of that, uh, when the spectators saw it, they started crying ballon, which is the French word for ball, but it's where our word balloon comes from today. Wow, okay. Because it was that, that ball shape. Hmm. Um, 
Another interesting thing, I think, about these balloons is that they very quickly became popular spectator sports. Lots of folks turned out. The Montgolfier Brothers balloons in particular were very large and very colorful, and it was very popular to uh, have hundreds of people come out on the streets of Paris and watch these Montgolfier balloons fly. And uh, amongst the uh, ones in the crowd uh, were Benjamin Franklin, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, all of who were uh, based in France, in Paris for a while, and uh, they all three saw the Montgolfier brothers' balloon fly. Ben Franklin, in particular, wrote back to America uh, wonderful descriptions of these balloons, and that's what got folks interested in ballooning in America, hmm. were these, these descriptions of it from uh, Dr. Franklin and uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Right. I mean, but they're just, you know, at that, they're just using them for, you know, to lollygag. I mean, like it's entertainment, right? I mean, it's... That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, balloons are seen as something for sport. Right. Uh, they are wonderful to go out and watch fly. They're big. They're colorful. They're pretty much the same way we think of them today. Sure. Uh, as just great, big, colorful things and... You know, today they build them in the shape of cows and the shape of, you know, all right. sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, people just go out to watch them. Uh, nobody was thinking of, of, of practical uses for them, uh, although that would change very, very quickly. Um, and one of the folks that recognized this, again, was uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin was present at the uh, flight of one of Charles's hydrogen balloons, and there's a story that uh, is a part of aviation lore that uh, is a wonderful story, I think. Uh, but when the balloon shot up into the air, and like I say, the hydrogen balloons went up very quickly, uh, the fellow standing next to uh, Benjamin Franklin is supposed to have said, you know, of what use is it? Mm -hmm. And Franklin's response, again, famous in aviation lore, uh, you know, of what use is a newborn baby? And... Uh, Franklin would write about, you know, here is a way of, of uh, attacking another country, of landing troops that could be all but unstoppable. Huh. So there were people that were starting to think about possible military uses uh, of it, uh, of the balloon. And, in fact, there would be some uh, early military attempts at using the balloon. Uh, these come primarily from the French. In fact, the French uh, form a balloon corps. Okay. Uh, and they use balloons. The first time the balloons are used uh, militarily happens on uh, June 23rd, 1794. Uh, and somebody that's more of a military historian than me would have to tell you about this battle. But uh, the Battle of Maubeuge, uh, the French use the balloons for reconnaissance duties. Uh, they form a balloon corps. Uh, Napoleon takes this balloon corps with him to uh, North Africa, but never uses it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, over a lot of discussions of, of, of whether the balloons were useful or not, eventually that balloon corps just gets disbanded. Uh, there were some other one-off attempts to use the balloons for military purposes. Uh, probably, to me, the most interesting occurs in you know, 1849, uh, and this comes from the Austrians. The Austrians uh, lay siege to Venice, and they decide to try to bomb Venice with balloons. Uh, now, they build these large balloons, 
and they hang bombs from them, but they also suspend a small balloon a parachute thing underneath. And as they get over Venice, they drop these little small balloons to see which direction the wind is blowing to help them try to get the bombs on target. Clever. Uh, those little small balloons that they dropped to test the wind direction were called trial balloons. Uh, so I don't know uh, how successful uh, the Austrians were with this, but uh, apparently not much because, again, we, we don't see balloons used for bombing again until uh, the Japanese in World War II. Right, right. Send them over uh, across the Pacific and actually managed to drop some bombs in the woods in the Northwest. <laughs> right. Not very effective, but I think they gave it a shot. But not terribly effective. So, yeah, this, again, some early one-off efforts in mm -hmm. using balloons for military purposes. Uh, but I think uh, is people were continued to think about such things. Uh, it was obvious that the balloon's place in the military was going to be for reconnaissance duties, air reconnaissance duties. And in fact, by World War One, even the airplane, uh, you know, boy, we see airplanes used uh, for all kinds of, of duties, military uh, duties today. But even the airplane, the initial thought was it's, its natural role is reconnaissance, getting above the enemy and, and learning where he is. Sure. And so in the, how do they even get introduced into the Civil War? Well, the person responsible for that is uh, primarily is, is, is Thaddeus Lowe, who okay. is probably the big name uh, in ballooning. Uh, Thaddeus Lowe uh, started his career in ballooning, if you will, as a traveling lecturer. Uh, and he traveled with a fellow, uh, oh, let me track his name down here, uh, Professor Dinkelhoff. That's a good name. Yeah, not making That's that That's a great up. name. <laughs> Uh, Dinkelhoff did lectures on a variety of scientific principles, uh, and Lowe traveled with him and helped him. And after a while, Lowe learned the principles well enough that he was able to give the lectures. So with the money he earned from these lectures, he started taking his own flying lessons, if you will. Uh, and what scientists were using balloons for uh, was meteorology, mm -hmm. uh, studying the weather. And there had been a theory for a long time that there were upper-level upper air currents. Just like there are currents in the ocean, there are currents in the, in the sky. Uh, and you could take a balloon off, get into one of those air cur currents, and travel anywhere. The goal was the Atlantic Ocean. Everybody wanted to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. Low was no different. Uh, and so in 1861, in April of 1861... Uh, Lowe takes off from Cincinnati on a flight in an effort to prove those upper-level air currents exist and that he can get across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and so he takes off from Cincinnati and he heads east in one of these air currents. He moves pretty quick. Um, I think it wounds up being, uh, when you think about where he takes off from and where he lands, yeah, about 70 miles an hour he, he wow. covers in, the, in this balloon. It's huge for, back. I mean... You yeah, because <laughs> I mean, what even trains were only doing thirty or something, right? I mean, I don't even. Yeah, I just I mean, made that uh, pulled that out of thin air. I know they're not doing seventy. Yeah, trains in World War II, uh, World War II, in, in the Civil War era, yeah, fifteen twenty miles an hour. Wow. So they're 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 crawling along pretty slow, but they're crawling along with a lot of stuff. So sure, <laughs> sure. 
So, but Lowe takes off from Cincinnati. He gets to within sight of the coast, and he drops down. Uh, he descends in an effort to figure out exactly where he is. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to him. The people come after him, and they've got rifles and pitchforks, and, and, and <laughs> you know, he, they, they, they seem to be a little hostile towards him. Uh, so he goes back up and continues to fly. By now, he's in a lower-level air current, and he's moving more west. Uh, and he winds up landing in a town in South Carolina, interestingly enough, called Unionville. And it's there in Unionville that Lowe discovers that the Civil War has begun. Uh, he's actually... And how in, long has he been in this balloon now? Uh, well, he took off... Let's see. Yeah, you know, I guess that that evening, and, and this is yeah, early so, the next day. So, so like a like a day. He, yeah, like a day or something? Okay. He, he travels. He travels about six hundred and fifty miles in nine hours. Okay, right. Okay, there's your. So Sorry. the way you said, he just found out that it was here. almost. I almost think like like a Rumpelstiltskin thing, where he was up there for like a month and then came. You know, no, <laughs> nothing no. like that. All no, right, nothing so. like that. Yeah, he took off on on Saturday, April the nineteenth. Okay, and flew about nine hours. So yeah, the war had, had begun. Uh, but the folks in Unionville uh, let him know about the war. They're very suspicious of him. They wonder what he's doing there. He's actually in prison for a bit, uh, held in prison and interrogated. But eventually they let him go. He hops on a train, goes back to Cincinnati. And uh, he starts thinking about, okay, how can the balloon be used uh, in the service of the country during the war? Uh Lowe is not the only one doing this. Uh, there were lots of folks that had used uh, John Wise, uh, another fellow named James Allen, uh, down in the southern states, uh, Charles Seaver. Uh, all were aeronauts that had been doing things with balloons scientifically for a long time, and all of them rush into this fray to offer their services. Uh, Lowe does something a little different, though. Most of these guys just go racing right to an Army officer <clears throat> and saying, hey, let me help the Army, and they basically get told no. Right. Uh, the, the Army wasn't terribly interested. Uh, uh, a lot of, uh, some of them got the opportunity to demonstrate balloons for military purposes, uh, but Lowe did something a little bit different. Uh, Lowe uh, went through a contacted his at the Smithsonian, and actually arranged to do a demonstration for Abraham Lincoln right. uh, in the White House. Uh, and that occurs um, on, let me, again, let me double check my date here, because uh, I'd like to make absolutely certain I get this correct. Um, June the 18th, uh, 1861. Uh, Lowe sets up his balloon on the mall in uh, Washington, D.C., what we call the mall today. Mm -hmm. uh, has a telegraph uh, in the balloon, and it's linked uh, uh, through the telegraph office to the War Department and to the White House. And so uh, on that day, Lowe takes off in his balloon, and uh, he sends out, he has a telegraph set out. Uh, from this point of observation, we command an extent of country nearly 50 miles in diameter. The city with its girdle of encampments presents a superb scene. I have the pleasure of sending you this first telegram ever dispatched from an aerial station 
and acknowledging indebtedness to your encouragement for the opportunity of demonstrating the availability of the service of aeronautics in the service of the country. Uh, I am your Excellency's obedient servant, TSC Lowe. Uh, and that telegram, telegraph got to Abraham Lincoln, who was impressed. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, very impressed and uh, uh, offered to see Lowe. And uh, they chat for a good little while uh, about this. And Lowe leaves Abraham Lincoln with instructions to form a balloon corps. Uh, and to also visit the War Department uh, to uh, see Winfield Scott, General Winfield Scott, <clears throat> uh, about forming a uh, balloon corps. Uh, Scott was not terribly interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, very old school. Very old school. He initially just, just turns Lowe away, and uh, Lowe goes back to Lincoln, who sends him back to Scott, with a wonderful little note that uh, that says, uh, "Will Lieutenant General Scott please see Professor Lowe once more about his balloon?" Uh, and again, uh, Lowe takes this to see Scott, and this is something that comedy writers couldn't couldn't make up. Uh, Lowe arrives at Scott's headquarters, and the door is answered by an orderly who uh, tells Lowe that General Scott was in a meeting, couldn't be disturbed, come back in a couple of hours. So in a couple of hours, Lowe comes back. Uh, the same orderly tells Lowe that Scott is still in the meeting and to come back later. So Lowe comes back a little later. On his third visit, he's told that Scott was now having lunch and couldn't be disturbed. So he comes back a fourth time, and this time the orderly tells him that Scott is taking a nap and can't be disturbed for any reason. So Lowe goes back to Abraham Lincoln again. Uh, and the next time that orderly opens the door, Thaddeus Lowe is standing there with President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, General Scott cleared his calendar. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Lincoln told Scott that Lowe had been put in charge of forming a balloon corps and uh, that he was to assist him in every way. Mm-hmm. So Thaddeus Lowe does something that uh, nobody else did at this point in time, and that is he actually forms a, a U.S. balloon corps. He has several balloons of various sizes. Uh, he hires people to fly the balloons, uh, and he has the balloons made to military specifications, very heavy silk, um, you know, coated uh, so that they won't leak. And, and are these the hydrogen balloons or are these hot air balloons? These are the hydrogen balloons. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were considered the best performing. Uh, also, once you filled them, if they didn't leak, they stayed in the air for a long time. Uh, they didn't have to be refilled necessarily. So uh, they, could, they could stay over the battlefield for a long, long time. Where in the heck do they get that much hydrogen? Uh, they made it. That's, <laughs> that's a wild... They made it. This is another thing that Lowe did that no one else did. Uh, once the balloon had been demonstrated, once the telegraphs had been set, well, let's move forward to uh, the Battle of First Manassas. Okay. Uh, at the Battle of First Manassas, there are a couple of attempts to uh, get balloons to that battlefield. Um, and again, let me... Uh, yeah, James Allen is going to be the first one to attempt to do this. Uh, and Allen is going to get his balloon inflated, and he's going to try to move it through the streets of Washington, D.C., because Allen had 
he inflated his balloons from gas works in D.C. Uh, but in moving it, it gets blown into a telegraph pole and gets torn, and that's that. Um, the next person was John Wise. John Wise is a very famous aeronaut, uh, considered the father of ballooning in America. He had done a lot of scientific work with it, uh, and he also uh, attempted to get a balloon to the battlefield at Manassas. He actually got his uh, across the Potomac and, and moved toward the battlefield, uh, but again, it, 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 it blew into a tree and tore. So obviously, one of the problems that the Army, anyway, sees with balloons is once they're inflated, they are very difficult to transport. Lowe solves that problem, and what he does is he creates uh, hydrogen generators. He took a standard Army wagon, put a great big box on, on top of the wagon, and lined the box with metal, and then he was able to dump uh, iron filings and sulfuric acid into the box, and this generates hydrogen. Uh, the hydrogen would come out of the box uh, through a, a couple of uh, boxes uh, that had limestone in them and, and, and purified sure. the hydrogen and cooled it. Um, the reaction of the sulfuric acid and the hydrogen, uh, the, the reaction of the sulfuric acid uh, with the iron filings produced hydrogen, but it came out very, very hot, so it needed to be cooled. So they had water and lime in these boxes and off of Purified the gas, cooled it down, and you could pump it into the balloons. Uh, Lowe could inflate one of his big balloons in about three hours with the hydrogen generators, but he didn't have to transport them inflated. He could, he could move the whole shebang to the battlefield on wagons and then inflate them. And once you got it to the battlefield, you could move it small, you know, small amounts fairly easily. That's wild. Is, like, just hearing you say that, like, it's obviously not like what we think of as a hydrogen bomb, but, like, I mean, they're getting so close to making an incredibly effective explosive. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and if you, if, if you got flame... If you got flame anywhere near, uh, anywhere I mean, near that hydrogen gas, yeah. I mean, that would have been... You got. Which, of course, is, well, this is what happens to the Hindenburg. Right. Uh, it just seems like, you know, the crudeness of the weapons that they used during the Civil War, and then they have this right there that you're like, wow, you could have just... They just put, you know, used that and dropped it on the bomb and just, you know, put a fuse on it, and then, you know, I, I mean, that's a, that'd be a hell of a thing. Might might have been a thought. I don't know that that was ever tried, but uh, <clears throat> it certainly might might have been a thought. Um, but Lowe gets all of this built. Uh, he had six uh, balloons, and uh, again, they were various sizes to be used for for different things. The largest balloons, probably the one that was most famous, was the Intrepid. Uh, it held thirty two thousand cubic feet of gas. It could hold. Uh, it could uh, ascend with five men or two in a telegraph system. Of course, that's primarily what, what Lowe wanted to use. Uh, the smallest of his balloons, the Eagle and the Excelsior, were 15,000 cubic feet. Uh, for the most part, they carried a single individual, uh, maybe two, and uh, they were created primarily to, to inflate quickly and, and get in the air quickly. I uh, don't know how much he actually uses uh, those smaller balloons, uh, but I say the Intrepid uh, and the Constitution, the two big ones, uh, were the ones that seemed to be used the most, and the Intrepid is the one that there are uh, so many Matthew Brady photos of that uh, you know it's 
probably the most famous. Uh, but the first low attempts to get a balloon to uh, first Manassas as well, uh, and he actually does, but the battle has, has more or less ended uh, when he gets there. So the first thing Lowe is going to do with his balloons is, is fly them uh, up around D.C. Uh, in northern Virginia, just trying to spot where Confederate troops are around there. He directs some artillery fire, first time ever. Artillery fire is directed from the air. Uh, and, you know, he really perfects using the system there. Uh, but the first time that system is going to get used is in the Peninsular Campaign, uh, right here in Virginia in 1862. Mm -hmm. uh, Lowe is going to move his balloons uh, down to the end of the, the peninsula here, Fort Monroe. And, uh, of course, uh, Union General McClellan uh, had landed. He had an army of about 110,000 men that landed down there at Fort Monroe and started moving toward Richmond. And Lowe and his balloons will be used pretty constantly uh, throughout that campaign do a, you know, I think, a remarkable job of getting in the air, finding out where the Confederate Army is, finding out where they're moving. Uh, the problem that he had was uh, the Army leadership uh, having any faith in him at all in what he was saying. <laughs> well, and he had McClellan's face painted on the Intrepid, right? Or was that a different one? One of them had like a big giant portrait of... I saw these pictures, and it was like McClellan's face was like on the side of it, which is like so amazing. McClellan was a, was a supporter of the balloons. Uh, that's not something that I am familiar with. I will have to look that up. But uh, uh, McClellan was a supporter uh, of, of the balloons. He thought they were uh, very much something that might be helpful, but he had a very difficult time listening to what Lowe was telling him. Um, and this happens early in the, in the Peninsular Campaign. Uh, kind of a fun story. Uh, McClellan had 110,000 men in his army. He gets to the Peninsula, and he faces off against Confederate General Magruder, who had about 10,000 men in his army. So uh, McClellan initially sends out Pinkerton agents to do reconnaissance for him. You know, Army had done this before. What Magruder did was he got all his men kitted up, and he just started marching them back and forth across the peninsula. He had them marching in circles. He told them to make noise, uh, to do everything they could do to draw attention to themselves. And, yeah, lo and behold, everywhere those Pinkerton men looked, they saw Confederate soldiers drilling and marching. So they go back and tell Lowe that Magruder's army basically matches his that they had seen, you know, certainly around 100,000 men in that army. Uh, when Lowe gets there uh, at the end of March in 1862, he flies, and he comes down, and, and again, it, it, it's a difficult situation for McClellan, I suppose, because uh, he's not seen a balloon fly like this. He, he's got a civilian operating the balloon with no military experience, and that civilian with no military experience comes down and tells him, I can't give you an exact count, but Magruder has nowhere near 100,000 men. And you basically, you've got to walk over if you'll take it. McClellan simply wouldn't listen to him. Uh, <clears throat> what he and his officers 
the thought was that, you know, this, this is a civilian that really doesn't understand how to do this, doesn't really understand how to do this. So they really didn't pay a whole lot of attention uh, to Lowe and his information. Uh, eventually, they would get... Uh, they would get a military officer flying with Lowe. And uh, hold on a second. We will track down his name here for you. Uh, uh, Porter, General Fitzjohn Porter, would start flying with Lowe in an effort to get information uh, for McClellan that he might pay attention to. Uh, this did, did pretty well. Uh, until one day Fitzjohn Porter had his one and only, if unintentional, uh, solo balloon flight. Uh, one of the men that James Allen had working, one of the men that Lowe had working with him was James Allen. Uh, again, very well-known pre-war demonstration uh, balloonist. Allen had attempted, was one of the fellows that had attempted to get a balloon uh, to the Manassas battlefield. But Lowe hired him, and Early one morning, Fitzjohn Porter came out, and Allen was trying to get the balloons ready. And uh, Porter said he wanted to take off and get some early morning observations. Uh, he had hoped to get higher than they normally did because uh, he wanted to see further. Uh, so a balloon normally was attached to the ground by three tethers. That's how you kept them from spinning. Right. The tethers were heavy. Alan told him if he wanted to get higher, quicker, uh, as long as he only wanted to take some, some quick observations, that they could go with one tether. Uh, and <laughs> so that was, that was, that was great. Uh, at any rate, uh, what Alan didn't know, he, he grabbed one of the, the tethers, one of the ropes, and what Alan didn't know was that this was a rope that it had some sulfuric acid poured on it from one of the, the hydrogen uh, generators. So Porter got in the balloon, up he went, and as soon as he got to that part of the rope where the hydrogen, where the sulfuric acid had weakened it, it snapped. Yeah. So Porter gets his one and only solo balloon flight. Uh, he wrote that he took good observations, some notes, but mainly instantaneous impressions like a photographic instrument. I had the enemy's position and defenses, so grafted on my mind, that when I descended, I was able to give a good sketch of everything. So, to his credit, the fellow didn't panic. Uh, he had seen Alan uh, release hydrogen to uh, get the balloon to land. Problem uh, is that being inexperienced as he was, when uh, Fitzjohn Porter pulled the, the ripcord, as it was called, he dumped most of the hydrogen. And the balloon... Uh, morphed into a parachute, which, which was intentional. This is a safety feature. And it dropped to the ground, more or less like you'd see a parachute drop. Huh. Thaddeus Lowe woke up that morning, went out, stretched, looked off in that direction, and saw one of his balloons dropping. <laughs> that was right. what woke him up that morning. Uh, he rode over and uh, discovered what had happened. Uh, Fitzjohn Porter was not injured, uh, as he said, to good observations. Uh, but apparently McClellan was not amused. And we have a quote from McClellan saying that, you may rest assured of one thing, you won't catch me in the confounded balloon, nor will I allow any other general to go up in it. Wow. And, and which battle is this? 
Uh, this is uh, early in the Peninsular Campaign. Okay. Uh, right. Not necessarily a battle. They're just they're taking observations, trying to see where the Confederate Army is. Okay. Um, they're flying around Newport News. Uh, oh, okay. Of course, the Confederates are occupying Newport News, and they're just trying to... Uh, McClellan eventually decides to lay siege to Newport News. All right. And they're just, they're just observing. Sure. You know, what they're doing there. Um, but at any rate... Uh, what McClellan decided, he, he, he felt that he still needed a military officer uh, flying with the civilian balloonist. Uh, and he needed somebody with experience, uh, you know, maybe somebody that's a West Point graduate, somebody that knows what they're doing, but perhaps a, uh, a lower-ranking officer that won't be missed uh, if something bad happens. And so... Uh, Another name that everybody will know from history, the uh, lieutenant that is selected to fly with uh, Lowe is, uh, like I say, a young lieutenant uh, named George Armstrong Custer. Wow. Uh, and so Custer, uh, not thrilled with the assignment, uh, he, his writings let us know that in no uncertain terms, uh, not thrilled with the assignment, but uh, Custer understood the mission. Uh, he said that... Custer uh, would write that Lowe and his men wrote about all sorts of things, but without a trained military eye with them, it was difficult to verify, difficult to make certain that they knew what they were talking about. Uh, so uh, Custer very carefully uh, <laughs> began flying with uh, Lowe and his aeronauts and, and awesome. taking observations. And how high are they going? Uh, what they wanted to do was get out of gun range. Yeah, that's smart. So once that's you get above plan. the trees, once you get above the trees, you are within gun range. Um, so between the trees and a, oh, a thousand feet, twelve hundred feet, uh, you're in what was called the danger zone. <laughs> that's actually what they called it, where the artillery and the muskets might get to you. Uh, so they definitely would, they, they they flew at a variety of altitudes, but they tried to get above that. Okay, above that. You know, at or above that thousand, twelve hundred foot level. That's a pretty good. I mean, that's a good clip. It's where they wanted to be. And I'm assuming they're using telescopes to uh, see this or stuff. field glasses. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Telescope or field glasses. Uh, they're 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 looking around to to see what they've got. Uh, it was also pretty common to count tents. Uh, you could see where an army was camped, and you saw the shelter halves. Each soldier carried a shelter half that you put together and made a small. You know what today we might call a pup tent, uh, although the ends of it were open. And so two soldiers slept in each shelter half. Uh, they counted them. Hmm. And you count those and, and multiply by two. And right. More or less have, have a, an idea of how big the army is. Hmm. Uh, so uh, they are traveling up the peninsula doing that. Uh, now, the Confederates are in on this as well. Yeah. Uh, touch briefly on that. Uh, the Confederates began this war. They didn't have an organized effort like Lowe. Uh, again, a fellow uh, named Charles Seaver went to the Confederate Army and offered to uh, fly balloons for them, and he basically just told no. So at any rate, uh, the Confederates come up with a hot air balloon. This is the only hot air balloon actually flown uh, in the war. Don't know much about it. Uh, we do know that as this peninsular campaign begins, Joseph E. Johnston is in charge of the Confederate Army. 
and he sends a note to General Beauregard discussing preparations for this. And amongst other things, uh, Johnston writes to Beauregard and tells him that the balloon might be useful. Uh, at some point in time, Johnston, Beauregard, obviously Confederate officers, had seen a balloon, had seen it demonstrated. Uh, was it used up around northern Virginia? Uh, not sure. Uh, in the Manassas battle, probably not. Uh, there were newspaper reports at that time in Washington newspapers that talked about a rebel balloon that had been seen uh, across the Potomac. Uh, <clears throat> but there seemed to have been other explanations for these. And in fact, one of these reports of a rebel balloon, Thaddeus Lowe was able to say, no, that was one of mine operating that day. Uh, it was like so, UFO stuff. Like, yeah. So, yeah, not really sure when the Confederates got a hold of this balloon. It was privately owned. Uh, Beauregard may have financed its use in the Confederate Army uh, all, all on his own. Uh, don't know the owner's name. But apparently it did get to the Confederate Army for the Peninsular Campaign. And to fly it, uh, the Confederates tapped a young man named John Randolph Bryant. We're very fortunate in that there, there were two officers that flew in Confederate balloons, and both of them wrote uh, in some detail about their experiences. But Brian is probably my favorite. Uh, in April of 1862, uh, this balloon got to the Confederate Army, and... General Johnston had a balloon, but he didn't have anybody to fly in it. So he sent a message to General Magruder uh, saying that he was seeking an individual who was thoroughly acquainted with the area surrounding the James River to perform reconnaissance duty. Now that's all that note said. Uh, this note passed through the hands of uh, Captain, then Captain John Randolph Bryant, and he wrote about this note saying that being young and I fear of a daredevil spirit, I ask that I might be detailed for this service. Uh, I assume that an assignment to this duty would bring me prominently into notice and probably offer some opportunity for distinguishing myself. Uh, Brian's friends, as friends are, are always willing to support, uh, apparently told him that he would probably get shot for my pains, is what, <laughs> is what he said. So, uh, Brian, he doesn't even, he, he takes a message right to Magruder and says, hey, I want to volunteer for this. Reconnaissance duty. Right. I'm all about that. Uh, so Magruder sends him on, and when he gets to Johnson, uh, Brian tells us that Johnston looks to his aide, Colonel, a Colonel Rhett, and tells him, you will please assign Captain Brian to the balloon service to make reconnaissances and instruct him as to what information we want and what kind of report we desire from him. Um, Brian apparently was not thrilled. Again, he wrote a great deal about this. He tells us that on hearing this order, I began protesting that while I could ride a horse and would gladly do anything in my power, that I had never even seen a balloon and knew absolutely nothing about the management of it. Uh, Johnston, being a good Army general, uh, apparently met Brian's protest with, you will perform your assigned task and without question. So uh, Brian uh, becomes the first Confederate aeronaut flying in this hot air balloon. Uh, apparently his uh, 
Uh, the first flight was on April the 13th, 1862. Uh, they had discussed signals that he was to use to uh, let the folks on the ground know where the Union Army was, things like this. Uh, and Brian uh, apparently did, did pretty well at this. Uh, he had some exciting experiences. Uh, he writes about being shot at. He says as soon as he got above the trees, uh, he says, as you may readily imagine, I did not feel very happy or comfortable uh, on the contrary, I was scared nearly breathless and was exceedingly nervous. Uh, I at once gave the signal faster and the balloon went upward more rapidly. Uh, before long, I reached an elevation above the line of fire when I signaled them to stop. So, uh, he, you know, he was met with this fusillade from Union gunners and sure. got him to shoot him up faster. And so he's using a hot air balloon. He's using a hot air balloon. And where do they get, what kind of gas are they burning there? Or, or uh, what... What what are they burning? They, 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 had, they well they they did have uh, a burner that uh, heated uh, the gas the, the air in the balloon. Uh, interestingly enough, and again this is something I don't know much about exactly how these early burners worked. Just know that they were there, uh, and so the that heated the the air in the balloon. Uh, Montgolfiers didn't have this. They built they they built a wood fire on the ground and just inflated the balloon over top of it, and up it would go and it would float about a mile or so and then and then come down. But by the Civil War, there were crude burners that could heat the heat the gas, uh, heat the air in the in the balloon. And I guess are they using like natural gas, like or like the coal gas, or I mean, or what? I don't even. Where would you even you know, especially. That's one of the things I think is amazing. I mean, you're making this gas out there, but then, you know, if these guys, I mean, they're in the middle of the woods. I mean, this, you know, they don't call it the Battle of the Wilderness because there's a city <laughs> right next to it, right? I mean, this, like, I don't know. That that just amazes me. It's yeah. Again, and this is a balloon that we know very little about. So, uh, other than the fact that it was a hot air balloon, mm. so uh, it apparently did have some kind of a crude burn on it. So, uh, that's a, that's a question I can't answer uh, right. in any real detail. Uh, but what we do know is that after this first flight, and again, you know, Brian tells us this, after this first flight, um, he lands, he gives the information to General Johnston, and with that information comes his resignation as a member of the Balloon Corps. And here's the wonderful punchline of all of this is that he tells us that Johnston told him, my dear sir, I fear you forget that you are the only experienced aeronaut I have with my <laughs> army. And you will please hold yourself in readiness as we may wish to make another ascension at any time. And indeed, Brian made several other ascensions until, like Fitzjohn Porter, he had a bit of an accident one day. Uh, Brian uh, took off, and the tether, one of the tether cords got caught around the leg of another soldier. And as that soldier was being dragged into the air, uh, somebody quickly cut the rope, and Brian took off on his only uh, free balloon flight wow. of the war. Uh, he actually came down on the backside of the Union lines on, on, uh, on a farm, uh, was able to meet the farmer, borrow a horse, and get back to General Johnson's headquarters, but that balloon was lost. Right. Uh, the Confederates wanted uh, another balloon. Uh, obviously, Johnston uh, felt it was very useful. The problem that the Confederates had was that they didn't have the heavy silk material to make a balloon. Uh, and so what they did was they uh, contacted a fellow, uh, well, Charles Seaver again, 
got, got put in charge uh, down in Savannah, Georgia, of creating another balloon for the Confederates. Uh, he had no silk, no heavy silk for it, so what he did was he went to a supply house in Charleston uh, by the name of Kerrison and Lighting, and he bought a whole bunch of dress material. And using this material, he created a very small balloon, uh, which uh, held about 7,500 cubic feet of gas, which makes it about half the size of Lowe's smallest balloon. So this is going to be a one-person <laughs> one person machine. Uh, but at any rate, he bought this dress material and built a, a, a small, very colorful balloon made out of dress material, uh, which the Confederates called the Gazelle. But this particular balloon has gone down in history as the silk dress balloon. Why? Because after the war, in an interview, General James Longstreet was telling the story of the creation of this balloon, and he quipped that when the Confederates had no silk, that he suggested, well, let's go out and collect all the silk dresses in the Confederacy and uh, make us a balloon out of them. And he said this was quickly done, and we had this wonderful, colorful balloon uh, ready for the Seven Days Battles. Mm -hmm. So here's a myth uh, of a Confederate balloon made of collected silk dresses that has lasted to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's one of those wonderful Civil War myths that uh, you know people come through our doors today asking about the silk dress balloon. Uh, you know, there is a children's book out there uh, written about all the dresses being collected to make this balloon for the Confederate Army. And again, made of dress material. Right. But no, no, no dresses. dresses were collected. Yeah, no dresses were harmed in the making of this nice. balloon. Uh, so again, another wonderful Civil War uh, myth that we're able to, to deal with here. Uh, but this balloon, like I said, they called it Gazelle, and it was here for the Seven Days Battles. Right. And it was flown uh, by a Confederate officer named Porter Alexander. Uh, Robert E. Lee actually assigned him to it. And again, uh, like Brian, uh, Porter Alexander wrote a good bit uh, about his operating this balloon. Uh, in fact, Alexander understood exactly why, uh, you know, like Custer, understood why you needed trained military men on board. Uh, one of the things that he wrote uh, was that, uh, I am sure that on certain occasions skilled observers in balloons could give information of priceless value, but the observers in the balloon should be trained staff officers, not the ignorant class of ordinary balloonists, which I think were generally in charge of the federal balloons. Uh. <laughs> Nice, so, nice uh, But Alexander very quickly discovered a problem with the gazelle, and that was that since it was not made of the, the heavy military-grade materials, uh, it leaked. And whereas one of Lowe's balloons could stay in the air for a very long time, for days, uh, the gazelle stayed in the air, according to Alexander, about three or four hours. Hmm. Now, this balloon also did not have the hydrogen. Uh, the uh, Lowe's balloons used the hydrogen generators to fill. Uh, the Confederate Gazelle didn't have that luxury. It was filled with coal gas from the Richmond Gas Works uh, here uh, uh, in the Chaco Bottom. Yeah. Was it, do you know if it was the Fulton Gas Works or there was another one I know that was between 
15th and 16th, the yeah, original one. The, the Richmond Gas Works, I think it was called. Right, because I know the, because um, the first one was built, it's basically where the Buffalo Wild Wings and the, um, and that, and then that's, that, I, I want to say 1850, but it was only like two years after that, that the Fulton Gas Works opened. Right. This, yeah, this was not full. This was the Richmond Gas Works, okay. I think, is what they called it. Uh, what they did was they mounted the gazelle on a train, on a flatbed. Mm-hmm. And they would fill it with the coal gas from the Richmond Gas Works and then run it out on the train out to where, uh, uh, on, on Williamsburg Road, out act probably near where the airport is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Alexander's descriptions, that's where he was operating from. So the Seven Days Battles begin, and we have uh, uh, Porter Alexander flying the gazelle and got low. But wait, is this something his. at this point that people are good with or people like thinking like what the hell are these people doing you know you know what i'm saying is this something that you know even the troops would they have seen a balloon and said hey look they're using a balloon or would have been like my god there's a big giant flying thing i mean you know that's probably going to vary from man to man uh you know by the time they got to richmond certainly mcclellan's troops were probably used to seeing it Lowe was flying on an almost daily basis uh, for the Confederates, uh, the folks around, you know, they, they were probably used to seeing Lowe's balloon as well. Uh, the uh, Lowe's balloon was certainly seen by people in Richmond. I mean, he, they eventually wound up in Mechanicsville. Right. And uh, there were newspaper reports in, uh, uh, in Richmond about seeing the, the, the Yankee balloon out there flying and, and spotting. Uh, and that was where, once the Union Army got to... Uh, you know, Mechanicsville got to, you know, this close to Richmond. Uh, Johnson had been calling for reinforcements, and by this time, the Confederate Army had, had blossomed to, I think, somewhere around 70,000. Uh, Lowe lamented this in his memoir, saying that, uh, you know, the victory that had, had been so easy was now going to be tough mm-hmm. because we had waited so long to really attack that tiny Confederate Army. So I suspect that certainly by the time they got to Richmond, you know, between April and, you know, June and then July, uh, the soldiers were getting used to seeing this. Hmm. Um, but, again, it might, you know, it might vary from, <laughs> from guy to guy Be how they felt about it. Uh, but the, uh, uh, by the time you get to the Seven Days Battles, uh, we wind up with this unique situation of there being low-flying, uh, for the Union, Alexander flying for the Confederacy, and uh, historians like to talk about, here we have the first time in history where, where two rival air forces were in the air right. <laughs> at the same time. Uh, they, they weren't shooting at each other, but they were certainly trying to uh, get, get reconnaissance and get intelligence information. Uh, and so uh, some type of aerial activity has become normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, by this time, has more or less become normal uh, in, in, in military operations. It's kind of neat. Yeah, that's awesome. And at some point, they, uh, I mean, they, they, because, you know, obviously, cause does Lee, when Lee takes over, is he in fan, a fan of this? Because you know, uh, Johnson, Johnson gets injured, gets shot. Johnson is right. Yeah. But, but Johnson Lee takes over. It was actually, but see, the Gazelle didn't make it until the Seven Days Battles, and by that time, Lee was already in command. 
So okay, it yeah. was Lee that actually assigned Porter Alexander to the balloon mm-hmm. uh, to to fly the gazelle. And, and so, he's a fan of this, or he's just kind of humoring people, or um, difficult to say. Uh, he certainly was not an officer like so many that uh, simply said, "I'm not interested." Right. Uh, that would happen. There, there was another uh, Union balloonist named Jean Lamontagne who flew down to Fort Monroe for a while uh, in the beginning of the war uh, when Benjamin Butler was in command down there. Benjamin Butler lost that command. A new general named Wool took over. And when Jean Lamontagne went to Wool to talk about what he was doing with the balloon, Wool just told him, I don't know anything about a balloon. I'm not interested. I don't care. Uh, And so Lamontagne eventually just packed up and left. Uh, And that becomes a very, very common problem. You have somebody like McClellan that is fascinated with the balloon, but his successor, not so much. Right. Uh, And getting the Army, getting Army officers interested in the balloon uh, and and its potential was very, very difficult. Um, uh, It was just not unusual at all for, like I say, for one officer to to be replaced by another, and that new officer just, okay, well, I don't want to name the balloons. Right. Balloons. <laughs> uh, uh, Lowe sent a German aeronaut by the name of Steiner uh, out to the western part of the uh, of the country, and Steiner found out uh, very very quickly that the officers out there, uh, and this is this is in Illinois, uh, that the officers out there were not interested in balloons at all. He actually wrote a very desperate plea back to Lowe saying, you know, I'm, just, I'm not getting anything here. Right. There. Uh, he wrote, the officers here are as dumb as a set of asses. Uh, <laughs> you know, he says, and uh, he, he complained that, you know, they, they, they say they know nothing about this. He says, they're, they're, they're laughing at me. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want me to do? Right. Uh, so poor Steiner eventually just gives up and, he takes the balloon he has with him and just starts doing demonstration flights. One of the people that saw one of Steiner's demonstration flights uh, was a fellow German, uh, an officer in the German Army who was traveling uh, with the Union Army, you know, as an observer in this war, uh, by the name of Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Mm. And uh, von Zeppelin was fascinated with this lighter-than-air means of travel. Uh, and when the war ended, he went back to Germany and felt that he could improve on it. Wow. Uh, what von Zeppelin determined was the problem was weather. Balloons were uh, at the whim of the wind and the weather. And so his idea was very simple. I'm going to take that bag of hydrogen. I am going to build a rigid airframe around it and stick a motor on it so that now I can move it right. and make it go where I want it to go. Uh, and uh, by the early parts of the 20th century, uh, the first Zeppelins were flying passengers uh, in Germany and uh, flew thousands uh, right. right up until World War I. Mm. So, again, another another interesting story that came out of this. Sure. <laughs> and But the, the balloons in at the Seven Days Battle, I mean... You know, I mean, you know, briefly, you have Johnson, uh, you know, McClellan drags his feet, Johnson's injured, Lee takes over, and suddenly the le- like the legend is born, right? I mean, he, they push the, 
the, the Union Army out. Um, I mean, is it how much? I mean, could because they were both equal, they both had a balloon. I mean, was there any advantage to either side? Well, the advantage that Lowe had was the telegraph. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, when, when, when the first battle begins at Mechanicsville, mm -hmm. uh, Lee attacks there. And <clears throat> Lowe uh, wants to get the Intrepid inflated because uh, he, he wants it to get up in the air so that he can use the telegraph. Okay. Problem is, is that uh, it took three hours to inflate. Mm -hmm. Well, he had another one of his balloons that was inflated at the time, and he took a basically a frying pan, cut the bottom out of it, used it as a valve, and took took gas from one balloon, inflated the Intrepid with it. Uh, there's a wonderful Matthew Brady photo of this uh, uh, that uh, is one of my favorite, probably my very favorite balloon photo of the war. Uh, we know from Lowe that the inflation process went from three hours. Do you have to a like digital copy hours. of that? Do you have a copy of that photo somewhere? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe we can uh, try and oh, put sure. it on the um, put it on the site so people can actually see what we're talking about. Um, I'm entirely certain I didn't have it right here, but, uh, but yeah, I can I can certainly do that. Awesome. Um, but anyway, uh, Lowe got the uh, Intrepid in the air with the telegraph key, and he says he was he was sending McClellan reports every 15 minutes uh, during the battle. Uh, making good observations, sending those reports down. Uh, Alexander was having to, Port Alexander was having to send signals. Um, I guess they worked, uh, but so I'm not really sure we can we can say anybody had one advantage over another. But but if so, in terms of technology, I say Lowe had that telegraph key at his disposal, so that was probably a good thing for him. Uh, Alexander uh, tells us that he also. Uh, Takes lots of good observations, but again, every few hours he's having to be run back into town and reinflated and run back out. Right. By the time they get down, and to the and, and how long? I mean, how they're Mechanicsville, so I mean, you're talking about a. Well, he's he's out he's out about where the airport is today, uh, out of Williamsburg. Oh, so he's only taking off from there and then coming right back down. And then coming back down and running the rail line back in. Ah, so he's you know what, a half hour he's back there. It, you know, at least a half hour ride, but either way, you'd say, or uh, less I than I that. Know if it was, don't know if it was that long. I mean, uh, it's not that. I mean, he's not going like hours. Like, I, that's I kind of my initial, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how long the train ride was, but it probably wasn't too terribly long. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, but he is having to, Alexander himself says that the balloon would only stay inflated three to four hours. Right. So he's going to have to come back here and reinflate and go back out. He must have been going to the Fulton Gas Works then, because that would have made no sense to go all the way back, because then the train went right by there, right, in order to get all the way back into town, right, because the Fulton Gas Works, that's basically like right at the bottom of Chimborazo Park, or the Chimber of the Hospital at that point. In order to stop there, he would have had to pass there and go all the way back into town to get there. Um, huh. Richmond Gas Works is, is, is the, the one that we know that... That's the, the name of it, whatever. Okay. But, yeah, um, but he is having to come back in and, and, and reinflate that balloon every, every so often. Hmm. Um, which, which the speed of this whole thing seems to be an incredibly cumbersome problem in war, right? I mean, like, if you're talking three hours to... 
stay up in the air, and then he's got three hours to get up in the air. Well, and um, maybe that's the advantage that Lowe had. Yeah. As we talk about military advantages, is, is you know, Lowe's balloon is going to stay in the air all day. He's not having to come back and, and reinflate his every three or four hours, um, wherever they were reinflating it. I guess I'm thinking more like a, of how static it is. I mean, because like, the Army's not going to stay there all day. If you retreat, you're going to want to be able to get get the daylights right. out of there. But you know. Yeah. Uh, but remember, you're, you're in the balloon. I mean, the Army is moving, but if you're 1,500 feet in the air, you're, you're watching them go by. You can still see them. Right. You're, you're, that's, that's the beauty of that aerial platform is, is you can. And so is low that far away from the, the Union lines? Uh, Lowe was flying from Mechanicsville. He was also flying from Gaines Mill, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit further south, but also a little bit further east. But, so that's, but that's mean, where he's flying from. Because, you, know, you see what I'm saying, like, is there, you know, if he's in the Verina area, right, the Confederate balloon's somewhere in the Verina um, airport area, I mean, that's a good 20, 10 miles, at least 10 miles from, like, Gaines Mill, Mechanicsville, and all that, right? I mean... At least a couple miles. Sure, it's it's yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I'd have to pull up Google Maps to find out exactly how far. But is, and, is, and, and the, is, is the crow flies? You you might find it's it's much shorter. Okay, and so low. I mean, we'll, he, we'll call but, it ten miles anyway. Okay, between five and ten. So low is about the same kind of distance away, or yeah, mm-hmm. okay, fair enough. So they're so they're not really that worried about getting captured. Uh, I mean, they're they're in safe. They're they're behind the lines. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. They, they are behind the lines. Uh, so yeah. now Alexander's situation changes pretty drastically uh, once the the seven days battles are ending, and of course the last battle is Malvern Hill. Uh, and at that point, the train is no longer capable of getting him where he needs to be. So what the uh, Confederates did was they took a tugboat called Teaser. Uh, the teaser, like I said, was a tugboat. It had been armed with, with a gun, fore and aft, to turn it into a small gunboat. But the teaser was used uh, to launch the gazelle from. Uh, and so here we have this little tugboat that, as people like to say, becomes the first aircraft carrier, becomes one of the first aircraft carriers. Um, we have a wonderful model of the teaser with the gazelle flying from it an exhibit right out here that I'll show you before you leave. A uh, wonderful model done by a fellow named Ozzy Rains that mm-hmm. uh, does models for the museum. Uh, and this was uh, one that Ozzy uh, uh, worked with me to, <laughs> right. to, to, to create. And uh, it's, we're, we're pretty tickled with, with the way it came out. But the teaser uh, was taking the gazelle uh, down the James River to where it would be closer to, to the Malvern Hill, Hill Battle. Um, once that was over on uh, July 4th, uh, 1862, uh, the teaser takes uh, the gazelle back down to that area to look and see where the Union Army has gone. And on that day, the gazelle finally gives out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they inflate it, it gets in the air, but it won't stay in the air at all. It comes back down. And here we have an interesting situation. Uh, the gazelle comes back down. Uh, and they, they pack it all up, and the captain of the teaser tells Alexander that he'll get him ashore somewhere where he can go and make a report to Lee. Unfortunately, the teaser gets stuck on one of the James River's many sandbars. It apparently was pretty hard aground, uh, 
Alexander uh, writes that uh, they realized that they, they were really going to have to wait for the tide to change, for something mm -hmm. to change in the river to get off of that sandbar. But while they are stuck there, um, while they're stuck there, uh, the teaser winds up being confronted by a Union gunboat called Maritanza. And the uh, Maritanza shoots at the teaser. And again, the Maritanza's captain, who was a Commander Stevens, wrote about this. He says, we trained our 100-pounder on her, bang went our gun, making a beautiful shot and knocking over several loose articles from the enemy's deck. Bang went our second shot and never did the fatal messenger take a truer course, tearing straight through the enemy's vessel and blowing her half to pieces. Uh, teaser was abandoned. Uh, Alexander got away, but uh, the Maritanza crew got on board the teaser and uh, found a bunch of stuff, uh, including the uh, defenses at Drury's Bluff. They found plans of the defenses of Drury's Bluff and the James River on board the teaser. Uh, it was a great idea that was. <laughs> but at any rate, um, amongst the other things that they found, uh, this, the, the skipper of the of the Maritons even wrote about finding a balloon made of silk dresses. So, right. you know, again, here's how this myth gets started. Uh, most people were not aware of the Maritanza captain's uh, comment so much as they were the interview by Longstreet. Mm -hmm. But the remains of the gazelle are going to get sent to Thaddeus Lowe. Uh, by this point, Thaddeus Lowe had gotten malaria. Uh, he'd been operating. You know, he'd been operating out there in the Chickahominy mosquito hatchery that all of us live here know about. Uh, and so he was back in Washington D.C. at this point, recovering from that. And the gazelle was sent to him. And uh, even uh, Lowe's comments on it was that uh, the gazelle was a veritable Joseph Joseph's coat of many colors. The silk dress balloon was a very brilliant and handsome object. So everybody that came in contact with this thing assumed that it had been made of dresses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, it's easy to see where the, where the myth got started. Right. Um, uh, what Thaddeus Lowe did with it was he cut it up into pieces. Uh, many of those pieces were given away to uh, a variety of important people like congressmen and friends, but one piece Lowe gave to his son, Leon. And in the 1830s, Leon Lowe uh, donated that piece to our museum. And we wow. have it in our collection. That's awesome. And so did Lowe's, Lowe gets, uh, I don't think it's a balloon, but he gets one of those contraptions captured at one point, right? The, um, the hydrogen making machines or something like that? Did they not get captured at some point? No? I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, low, <clears throat> the balloons really don't last beyond the summer of 1863. Mm -hmm. uh, what goes on there? The Confederates will build uh, the Confederates will build another balloon, Gazelle, uh, Gazelle 2, they call it, uh, which will actually fly down in the Charleston area. Uh, and then in the summer of 1863, it's going to be destroyed by wind, and that's it for Confederate balloons. Uh, the problem that Lowe has, again, is he keeps encountering this official indifference. Uh, the last action that Lowe's balloons are going to be involved in is the campaigning around Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. uh, and he and his men fly there, uh, and then the Army decides 
that uh, uh, the whole thing needs to be placed under, in command of a military officer and a, a Colonel Cyrus Comstock gets placed in command of, of the balloon. So all of a sudden, Lowe has lost control of his own balloon corps. Uh, Comstock was not thrilled with this. Uh, he, this is what I think the military term is. Uh, he viewed this as a career killer. Uh, you know, he, he wanted nothing to do with the, these idiotic balloons. Uh, eventually, he would be, get put in command of, of building defenses. Uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly where, but again, out, out more toward in the west. Uh, and with that, the balloons pretty much just go away. Again, no balloons were uh, used in Antietam. Uh, no balloons were used at Gettysburg. Again, by the summer of 1863, even the Union Balloon Corps has, has more or less simply gone away. Uh, and, and the primary reason for that, uh, I think, seems to be just official indifference. Hmm. Uh, the Army simply, whether it worked or not, the Army simply didn't care to, to explore it. Um, not all that unusual in a war. The Army is seldom interested in developing new technology uh, uh, in a war. Uh, they're more interested in, in, in making sure what they have is working as well as it can. Uh, a, a wonderful example is, you know, every airplane, nearly every airplane that the United States used in World War II was at least on the drawing board before we were ever in World War II. Right. Um, so not, not a whole, necessarily a lot of development uh, during the war. But, uh, you know, things, things do come out of it. But, huh. But uh, same thing with the, with the balloons. The, the Army just didn't seem to be all that interested in, in, in developing this and using it, no matter, no matter whether it worked or not. Right. <laughs> it just didn't seem to be something they were interested in. Huh. That's interesting, though. I like that. You don't uh, hear a whole lot about balloons. I like that. So, so uh, lighter-than-air craft for military use will make a comeback in uh, World War One. Certainly, uh, we know about the Zeppelins that were used uh, for bombing London. Uh, but also in World War One, uh, they used balloons for reconnaissance over the lines, exactly the way they were used in the Civil War. Huh. Uh, these were uh, not the round balloons that we see in the Civil War, <clears throat> but sort of elongated, sort of sausage-shaped. And so uh, that is why the pilots that flew in World War II referred to these balloons as sausages. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, but because they were uh, collecting reconnaissance, the crews of these balloons in World War I uh, were considered very, very important. They, uh, until the very end of the war, they are the only airmen in that war that have parachutes. Oh, wow. Uh, and they were very well protected. When a balloon was up doing its thing in World War I, uh, it usually, it certainly had machine guns around it on the ground to protect it, and it frequently had fighter protection uh, flying around it as hmm. well. So they became very, very difficult targets. Uh, in World War II, uh, the Navy uses blimps uh, to patrol the coast, uh, looking for U-boats and things like that. Uh, the Navy had also used Zeppelins for patrol purposes before the war, but all of those Zeppelins were destroyed before the war by, by weather, you know, because of weather issues. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, today, and again, if you want, I can 
send you a digital image of this. Yeah. Uh, there are still balloons operating, doing reconnaissance uh, down at Key West. Uh, they call them Fat Alberts <laughs> in that area. Uh, and, and even in Afghanistan, uh, the, the military refers to them as aerostats, which is the technical name for a balloon. Uh, and they use a variety of reconnaissance packages to uh, uh, look at, again, what, what might be going on around them. So uh, they're unmanned. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the balloons are still, they're still being used for reconnaissance duties today. So uh, this, somebody finally figured out they worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The indifference sort of settled a little. <laughs> I guess well. so. A couple of other things. Uh, I did mention early on that you know a lot of the, the impetus uh, for the development of the balloons was the desire to to travel with them and, and fly in the upper level air currents, and guys were trying to get across the Atlantic Ocean in balloons. Uh, that is actually going to happen uh, August seventeenth, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, three guys, Ben Abruzzo, Maxie Anderson, and Larry Newman, actually did get across the Atlantic Ocean in the Double Eagle Two. Uh, and then between uh, during March of uh, 1999, uh, March 1st to March 21st, 1999, uh, two aeronauts, Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones, made it around the world. Wow! Flew around uh, the I think world. I remember that the Brightling Orbiter Three. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, you know it all comes together. Uh, both of the, the flight across the Atlantic and the flight around the world were accomplished riding upper-level air currents that were discovered by, by Thaddeus Lowe back in 1861. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Nice work, Thaddeus. <laughs> An awesome name. That was the podcast. I still think that Thaddeus is a fantastic name. Thank you very much, Bryce Van Stavern. And, and if you want to see that photo that he was talking about, uh, about the one balloon inflating the other balloon, um, it's a pretty cool picture. Tons of dudes pushing this balloon to pushing the you know, air out to get it into the other. You can find that at historyreplacetoday.org. When you go there, click on the support button. You'll find out all kinds of information about how easy it is to donate to the podcast, help to keep this thing free, help to keep it going. It is a labor of love. So please help support it. If you can give 500 bucks, that's great. If you can give 10 bucks, that's awesome as well. You know, just help me get gas to go talk to people like Bryce. Um, and let me know what you think of the podcast. Feedback is always fantastic. So you can email me, Jeff Major at historyreplaystoday.org. That's J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. You can also you know, tweet me at History Replays. I'm on Facebook, History Replays Today. I'm also on Tumblr, History Replays Today as well. And I've also been trying to post some Today in Richmond History stuff on there so you can you can find out about that, that kind of thing. Um, but just let me know what you think. And, you know, it means a lot to me when I see reviews. So write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to this. Um, you know, write a review for me. That would be fantastic. Thanks to everyone who already has. And make it a great day.